All right, so today we're going to be talking about a very special topic that is surely on everybody's mind. And that is the topic of reserve armies of labor. That is considered a Marxist concept at times, but to me, like a lot of these things that fall under the banner of Marxism, I'm not really convinced that, you know, he necessarily is the main point of uh, the argument that he's making. So um, let's examine a little bit of what that means, all right? So, at, you know, as is always the case, you can tell me if you think I am wrong, but I'll tell you my understanding of, of how parts of the capitalist system work, including the sort of cultural values it thrives on and seeks to create. Under what may be called the classical system of capitalism, the structure is extended, supposedly, by ever-expanding reserve armies of labor, by a constant lowering of the rate of interest in organized labor, and by a growing power of monopolistic competition. And really, one needn't be Karl Marx to see this or grasp some, some of the inherent contradictions within the system and its cultural expectations. To begin with, right from the very start, capitalism itself is ever-changing, so for to rigidly attempt to cling to any sort of traditional approach puts stability at risk, actually. So really, capitalism is only able to retain so much power and control over the population at any given moment, lest it step on too many toes and create too many rebels against what could be the oligarchic interests that the system serves. So basically, at all times, there is sort of a tightrope act between seeking to control and manipulate people while still giving them some degree of freedom. That being said, there are definitely instances where corporations go too far, get too greedy, and demand too much power, to the point where it burdens the system itself, and on very rare occasions, there will even be calls for regulations and restrictions on what even the wealthiest, most corrupt interests can get away with. And this is done basically as a form of revolution insurance. And uh, it's it seems like it's increasingly not done often enough. But of course, the, you've got the pressures to actually do more of that. And interestingly enough, in fact, one of the reasons industrialist and Nazi sympathizer Henry Ford offered his workers benefits was those was so they would retain some loyalty to his business and presumably to capitalism itself overall. In fact, it seems even his strongest critics should give him credit as a pioneer of so-called welfare capitalism, which went so far as Ford offering his workers a $5 per day wage in 1914, which would be a whopping $140 per day. I mean, today, oops, um, you know, that's quite a lot of money. This was perhaps a different understanding back then, both in ways that were terrible, uh, but sometimes in ways that were actually relatively good. As early as 1696, John Bellers, an English educational theorist and Quaker, 
said of the power of labor, quote, For if one had a hundred thousand acres of land and as many pounds and money, and as many cattle without a laborer, what would the rich man be but a laborer? And as the laborers make men rich, so the more laborers there will be, the more rich men, the labor of the poor being the minds of the rich. So Bellers was sort of a proto-socialist of his day. In fact, Karl Marx actually mentions Bellers in chapter 25 of Das Kapital. The idea was that if workers are treated reasonably well, the general standard of living grows to an ever greater height, and to an idealist, maybe the average citizen will become an adventurous Robinson Crusoe type by choice rather than misfortune. You know, the cliched expression, a rising tide lifts all boats. And now with automation and other technological advancements, theoretically, the mass of the population no longer has to toil as often, but instead can live upon the products of the occasional labor of others, paired with the toil of machines. It could theoretically be even more unlike earlier epochs of history, but we have yet to entertain ideas like the universal basic income in a serious way, especially in the United States. And in fact, we really dodged that opportunity in 2020, in the year of the pandemic. Um, it was really one of the best opportunities to at least try something like that. It would not have even been all that controversial at the time because people were basically expected to be out of work on a large scale anyway. And this possibility and similar ideas for advancement are a pretty understandable reason why some people, you know, uh, instantly reject rebellion, basically in a knee-jerk reaction. Sure, the social ladder might seem questionable at times, but would you rather just be stuck on some ladderless rung, maybe stranded at the bottom, never getting any great ideas and innovations off the ground again? You know, you'd be seen as a slacker, a primitivist, a Luddite, or any number of things. You know, if you uh, basically challenge the nature of the system as it is, which is, you know, all about work. And the roots of that actually go back to the, you know, the old farm days where, pe where people really had to work more as sort of a general phenomenon because if you if you were a slacker, well, then not only would other people be in trouble, but your your own family would not be able to you know thrive. They might not even be able to survive, let alone you know do an excellent uh, advancement within the system or however you want to word it. Another basic problem is corporations at the end of the day are not producing for hire; they are producing for profit and chiefly disproportionate profit at that. That's really how the system is built, and by intent of design, because there is basically a built-in component of perceived class superiority among those at the top, and the perpetual spitting of venom at many of those at the bottom. And sure, you won't as often see the Tony Robbins of life trash-talking the poor and whatnot, but when it comes to the Rupert Murdochs, Absolutely. Like if you watch uh, like Fox News, 
they're trash talking the poor all the time. They're, they're never really making that a big secret. And of course, the system of exploitation extends over the whole globe, really, because we have a global economy. And we already know how a lot of the system is structured, as pretty famously highlighted by, you know, Emmanuel Joseph Saez, or however his last name is pronounced. I really don't know how it's pronounced, but whatever. And uh, Wikipedia paraphrased it, and uh, he basically talked about the four estates. The first estate was the clergy, the second estate was the nobility, the third estate was the commoners and bourgeois, and the fourth estate was the press. As in earlier ages, the oligarchy rules most of the world and lives in luxuriance, potentially as if they are new kings. At the same time, the power of the proletariat, that is, the working class, is shrinking and enough of them are suffering. You know, that's where these all tie into these different estates, really, because you've got these different segments of the population. So, a text from the University of Regina's Department of Sociology and Social Studies gets into what the uh, proletariat is and where it came from and uh, how it fed into the whole Marxist thing. So they say that historically the proletariat emerged as the aristocracy began to suffer financial difficulties in the later Middle Ages. Many of those who were supported by working for the aristocracy lost their livelihood, the disbanding of the feudal, re feudal retainers, and the dissolution of the monasteries, using enclosures, changing the conditions of production and agriculture, and denying peasants access to common lands and resources, landowners transformed land into, into pasture land for raising sheep, or sold land to farmers who began to develop grain and livestock, livestock production, livestock, oops, livestock production, People who had subsisted on the land were denied the possibility of making a living on the land, and they became propertyless. Population growth was also considerable, and in some areas forced labor. Slavery, indentured servants, poor, or prison was used. While some people subsisted in rural industry and craft production, factory production began to undermine these as well, in the 18th and 19th centuries. Together, these changes created a large class of landless and propertyless people who had no choice but to become members of the proletariat, many working in factories. These people became free wage laborers, free from feudal ties and free from a source of livelihood. So, in American propaganda, there are times already when the masses of the people are no longer considered as the leading members of society, but are merely the temporary sub subordinate lot to be swept away in the undertaking of the rich, who are to become the masters of everything. And again, if you wonder where you can find that kind of propaganda, well, look no further than Fox News, your, your buddies and mine. They pretty much openly have these values expressed. You know, it's not really very well hidden at all. So frankly, fewer people, including propagandists themselves, will 
genuinely believe these rags to riches stories, you know, the idea that things can only get better, you know, that kind of mythology that capitalism traditionally promotes and even entails. Um, if we go back to the Henry Ford days that I talked about, but you know, that tradition is largely gone away. In fact, increasingly, they will proceed with legislation to reduce democracy in all its forms and to promote more divisive culture war crap for the divide and conquer approach to propaganda. So expect things like anti-trans hysteria, more religious lunacy, more racism and xenophobia, etc. You know, that's really the uh, direction they're already heading down. So we're going to see more and more of that. Sandy Baum, the co-writer of an Urban Institute report on the economics of higher education, said, I think that the idea that people from low-income backgrounds are so unlikely ever to go to medical school or law school is definitely a problem. So, you know, that's already something that we've seen, and I think it's really going to get worse because that's just how the propaganda works. Those are the values that a lot of people are choosing to go with. You know, just uh, that's how the cookie crumbles in life. You know, if you don't have education opportunities or what have you, then, you know, you're basically going to be stuck and it's all your fault. And, you know, there's no way you can get out of it. That's really what a lot of people, you know, in the uh, propaganda field are really striving for. But, but really we can reasonably expect that problem to grow if the Rupert Murdochs have more say than the Henry Fords. And again, I'm not saying Henry Ford was such a great guy. You know, obviously he was flawed in many ways, but he at least understood that his own workers meant something, you know, and he would more likely than not occasionally throw them a bone. Whereas these days, you know, they're not going to throw you a bone. Um, they're going to, like, throw you a baton to beat you over the head, like, if you get too far out of line. So if the mega-greedy have their way, more among the working class are to be spared work and training, deprived of the opportunity of useful work, and in time reduced to indigence, or at the very least compelled to sell their labor power to increasingly pathetic jobs. Regarding America... You know, a Baltimore paper in or in 1815 referred to an almost universal ambition to get forward. But we'll see just how far ahead we can get in the coming years in this endlessly pathetic propaganda battle being waged against the working class.